Scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9, the verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. As people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1, this morning we're going to be looking at a fairly well-known passage. Um, this is the passage where the angel Gabriel announces uh, the coming of Christ. And it reminds us that the greatest gift of Christmas is the gift of Jesus Christ. And so as a church, we, we want to ensure that, that Christ is at the heart of what we're celebrating now, that's not to say that I don't personally enjoy some of the other traditions that come along with Christmas, the, the giving and the receiving of gifts. If you were to stop by our house, um, you would see that on, on one of the walls, we have all these lists that our children have hung. And they've actually, um, they've actually developed a system where they, where, they, where they rank gifts with check marks and circles and stars. And that way, as parents, we know which gifts they want, uh, which ones they really want, and which ones they really, really, really want. Now, maybe you have something similar that goes on in your home. Right? There are all these things that we want, but this passage reminds us that there is only one thing that we need. And so our prayer as a church, especially as we enter this season of Christmas, is that many would receive Christ this year. Let's read from Luke chapter 1. I want to pick it up in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, 
since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you're um, just joining us this morning, uh, we've just started this sermon series through the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that Luke is doing as he writes this Gospel is he's demonstrating that we serve a God who not only uh, makes promises, but a God who keeps promises. Last week, we looked at the last promise of the Old Testament, uh, a promise that you'll find at the end of the, the prophecy of Malachi. It's a promise about a prophet who will come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And last week, we saw that that promise was fulfilled when Gabriel announced the coming of John the Baptist. This week, I want to look at the first promise of the Old Testament. It's a promise that you find in the opening chapters of Genesis. There you find God creating the world. God creates Adam and Eve. And they live in perfect relation with him. And they live in perfect relation with each other. But just a couple chapters in, you discover that the devil, Satan, the serpent, comes and he tempts them to sin and suddenly, that perfect world is shattered. Suddenly, they do not have that, that relationship with God, and suddenly, their relationship with each other is broken as well. Instead of enjoying the presence of God, you discover that they're actually banished from the presence of God. Instead of love, there is hate. Instead of peace, there is hostility. Instead of this, this perfect unity, suddenly, you encounter division. The opening chapters of Genesis provide the explanation for everything that is, that is wrong, everything that is broken, everything that is corrupted in the world today. But here's the point I want to draw out. Not only does God in the opening chapters of Genesis identify the problem in the world, he also promises a solution. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God says this. He's speaking to the devil. This is immediately after the fall into sin. And he says to him, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, speaking here of an offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right? This is the gospel already in Genesis 3 verse 15. The good news that God himself is going to provide a savior, a redeemer, a messiah who's going to rescue us, who's going to redeem us from that power, that stranglehold of sin and death and Satan himself, and who's going to restore, who's going to reconcile the relationship that we once had with God. And so everything else, actually, that, that kind of follows after Genesis is leading up to, and it's pointing towards the fulfillment of that promise, and it's pointing ultimately towards our passage today. Right? In our passage today, what Gabriel is doing is he's actually announcing the gospel. He's preaching the good news to Mary of the coming of a king whose kingdom will reign 
forever. I want to ask you this morning, as you look to Christmas, is this king your king? How have you responded to the gospel? See, this passage doesn't just confront us with the good news of Jesus Christ, but it also asks the question, how have you responded to the good news of Jesus Christ? And in Mary, we we have this picture of what the response of faith looks like. And so I kind of want to walk through this passage from her perspective and highlight three aspects of kind of a response of faith. I want us to recognize the grace of God to marvel at the power of God. And finally, we must surrender to the will of God. Those three things uh, as we work through this passage today. If you look down at your text, we read in verse uh, 26 that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so basically this passage is happening six months after the passage that we looked at last week. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, the angel Gabriel, we talked about last week, the angel Gabriel was, was, um, he had a special role, you could say. He had a unique role. He was someone who stood in the presence of a holy God, and particularly at, at these monumental moments in the history of salvation, God would send him out to speak on his behalf. And so the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and he says to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary, she's greatly troubled. She is perplexed, you might say, at his words, and she wonders what kind of greeting this might be. And I think we have to be somewhat sympathetic to Mary's reaction. Because the appearance of the angel Gabriel in Nazareth is really completely unexpected. I think on some level, if we think about last week, on some level we can understand why the angel Gabriel would appear in a place like the, the, the temple. Like We can understand why the angel Gabriel would appear in the holy place, and we might even be able to grasp why he would appear to a priest like Zechariah. But why a place like Nazareth? This, this tiny, this remote village in the north of Judea, it, it was absolutely a nothing town. It was the kind of place that the Jews themselves made fun of. I, I remember, I guess it's about eight and a half years ago, we moved to Hamilton from BC. And one day I was in the store And I was talking to someone who'd been born and raised in Hamilton, and I just explained that we'd moved recently from BC. And they said to me, they said, why in the world would you move to Hamilton? It's the armpit of Canada. I was like, whoa. I was thinking, man, Hamiltonians are making fun of Hamilton. (laughs) And we're really regretting the move at this point. But this is the kind of approach that the Jews had to Nazareth. Jesus, for example, when he's calling Nathanael in John chapter 1, he's calling Nathanael to be his disciple, and when Nathanael hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, his response is to say, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
It was an insignificant town. And really, Mary was an insignificant person. She was just a teenager, probably um, in her young teens. She's from this average place. She's engaged to an ordinary guy, Joseph, a carpenter. There's nothing remarkable about her. And you read this passage, uh, which is really the fulfillment of everything between here and Genesis 3, and you're thinking, well, God, if you're going to entrust your son, the Messiah, the King of Kings, to someone, surely, right, we could choose someone more significant than Mary, and we could definitely find a place that's more significant than Nazareth. And so, of course, Mary is confused. And of course she's troubled by this idea that she is highly favored. She knows that there's absolutely nothing special about her. But that's exactly the kind of person that God uses. And I wonder this morning, as you read this familiar story, I wonder if you recognize the grace of God in Mary's life. And I wonder if you also are perplexed, if you're even somewhat troubled by the thought that someone like her would be the object of God's grace and God's love. And if I make that more personal this morning, maybe I could ask you, do you ever stop? Are you ever perplexed? Are you ever troubled? by the grace of God in your life. I mean, this morning we are hearing God speak and he's announcing the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ. We're hearing the message of God who sent his son to save sinners. Are you ever perplexed? Are you ever troubled by the concept that God would include someone like you? Do you recognize the grace of God. You see, the thing about God is that he's not looking for those who think they are special. God uses those who know they are not. But if you look at the story of salvation, everything leading up to this passage, it is full of unlikely candidates. All you have to do is to, to look at the family line of Jesus. You've got a guy like Judah who dabbles in prostitution. You've got someone like Rahab who made her living through prostitution. You've got someone like Ruth who's this Moabite, who's someone who's far from the kingdom. You've got David who was a murderer and an adulterer, and we're just scratching the surface when it comes to Jesus' family line. Right? There are all of these unlikely candidates, and you ask the question, why? Because God wants to make clear that it's not about us, it's about him. And Paul, as he writes to the church in Corinth, Paul is trying to explain this to a church that it's full of unlikely candidates. He says in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards. 
Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The starting point to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ is to come to a place where you recognize that you have nothing to offer God. To come to a place where you actually really, really understand that you're not worthy. And then to realize that God is still willing to love you and use you anyway. And that's what you see with Mary. There's a recognition of the grace of God. And it leads her ultimately to marvel at the power of God. If we look back down at our text in verse 30, we read there that Gabriel carries on. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. And then he affirms to her again. He says, you have found favor with God. And then he starts all of these promises, beginning in verse 31. He says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, I said at the outset of this message that one of the themes that you'll find in Luke is this, um, this concept that God is not just making promises, but God is keeping those promises. And that's exactly what you see in the announcement of Gabriel. The announcement of Gabriel makes clear that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of, of all of these Old Testament prophecies. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that are pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to highlight just a few of the more well-known ones uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign... The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Luke is pointing out you can put a check behind that one. Isaiah 9, verse 1, which we just read from earlier. Right here is a, a, a passage. We're talking about this lowly place called Nazareth from Galilee. Well, Isaiah 9, verse 1, the prophet says, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations. And Luke says, yeah, you could put a check mark behind that one as well. In 2 Samuel 7, you'll find um, God is making a covenant with David where he promises him that, that the, the throne will never, ever be removed from his family line. And in Isaiah 9, where, um, where the prophet Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah, he comes back to this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. God is making clear through this announcement of the angel Gabriel that he's not just a God who says what he will do. He is a God who will do what he says. In the announcement of the birth of Christ, you have all of these Old Testament prophecies 
written hundreds of years earlier, coming together and finding their fulfillment. And these are the prophecies that the Jewish people were holding on to. These were exactly the kind of promises that Mary would have known. And she gets to experience now that these things said hundreds of years before are finally going to happen. One of my one of my favorite childhood memories happened on October 23rd, 1993. This was game six of the World Series between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Philadelphia Phillies. I was watching the game uh, with my dad and with my brothers. And if, if you kind of remember back then, some of you will, they, they were tied, or sorry, they were down 6-5 going into the bottom of the ninth. And Mitch Williams, the wild thing, he'd come in to close the game for Philly. He had this beautiful mullet. You can go and look at it later. So Mitch Williams comes into the game. The Jays have two people on, and Joe Carter comes to bat. Now, Joe Carter was actually kind of an unlikely candidate on this particular evening because I think he'd gone 0 for 4. And so when he came up to bat, I'm thinking, like, not this guy. You're hoping that the manager is going to make a switch and throw somebody else into the game. It doesn't happen, and Joe Carter goes down two strikes. And I'm thinking, this is not good. And then my dad, who never really said a whole lot whenever we watched sports, he pipes up from the back and he says, boys, he's long overdue. And I kid you not, the very next pitch, we had jumping Joe Carter. And I always have that memory in my head, and I understand that it was just kind of a lucky prediction. It was just kind of a one-off. But there's something awesome about witnessing something and calling something before it actually happens. But here's the thing. Could you imagine what my reaction would have been if my dad had called the entire game? If before we even sat down, he said, hey, boys, listen, here's what's going to happen. You know, top of the first, here we're going to go, do, 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 do. here's the runs, here's the hits, here's where we're going to score, here's it. and this is what's going to happen in the bottom of the ninth. As I watched everything unfold, if it would have happened that way, my jaw would have just been on the floor. But in many ways, that's the reaction that God wants us to have as we read this passage. God wants our, our, our jaws to really kind of be on the floor as we watch these prophecies, these things that he said hundreds of years earlier unfolding exactly the way that he'd said. And so in some ways, you can understand Mary's response. She's shocked by the promises that God is, is telling her and everything that's coming together. And she asks the question, she asks the question, how will this be? And I know that that sounds a lot like the response that Zechariah offered last week. But I do think it's different. Zechariah's question came more from a, a place of, of doubt, you might say. In fact, I think you could argue that Zechariah was, was looking for a sign. He wanted a sign from God. Where, where Mary's question is more of an honest question. She simply doesn't understand. She's, 
She's simply speaking about a reality. She's not even married. He's, God's talking to her about this, this child that's going to be conceived in her womb, the Son of God, the Messiah, this King. And she's saying, I'm, I'm a virgin. I, I'm not married. I've never been intimate with a man. Humanly speaking, what God is describing is impossible. And so God says to her, I will do it. God says, I will make the impossible possible. And he says to her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel Gabriel says you will experience a miracle. You will experience a super natural birth. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? As you think about Christmas, do you believe that God has made the impossible possible? To be a follower of Jesus is really to believe that God has made the impossible possible. I mean, the whole reason that God sent his son into this world to take on human flesh and to be born of a virgin was to make the impossible possible. And the supernatural birth of Christ is, is what has paved the way for our supernatural birth. And in John chapter 3, you find Jesus trying to explain this to a man named Nicodemus. Right? Nicodemus is this Pharisee. He's a very religious man. He's a, he's a righteous man. He's someone that we might say deserves to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, very, I, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need a miracle. You need a supernatural birth. And Nicodemus, like Mary, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't get this. He, he doesn't understand. He's like, well, how, how does that work? Do I enter a second time into my mother's womb? He says, that's impossible. But God is able to make the impossible possible. You see, God promises Mary that his son is going to dwell in her. And she says, how can that be since I'm a virgin? But the question that we should be asking as we think about the promise of God to us that his son will dwell in us is the question, how will this be since I'm a sinner? What would the spotless Lamb of God, what would the Holy Christ want to do dwelling inside of a sinful person like me? That seems impossible. But every day, all over the world, God is taking men and women 
young and old, rich and poor, and God is making the impossible possible. You see, we need God to do to us what he did to Mary. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us and to overshadow us so that we as well can be called sons and daughters of the living God. We need God to reach in and to take us from death into life. We need God to reach out and to take us from the kingdom of darkness and to draw us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. What you need to understand is that every person who truly confesses the name of Christ is a miracle. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, when he was reflecting on this passage, he said this. He said there are three wonders here. One, that God should become a man. Another, that a virgin should bear a child. And the third, that Mary would believe. Humanly speaking, our hearts are so dark and our hearts are naturally so inward focused that it's actually a miracle that anyone would believe. Humanly speaking, you have to understand that the preaching of the gospel should be ineffective. Humanly speaking, it should fall on deaf ears. As much as I might want people to believe, I can't make people believe as a preacher. But God is able to make the impossible possible. And the fact that there are all these people here this morning who are coming together to worship the living God is a testimony to the power of God and a reminder that his word will never fail. So we marvel at the power of God, but we also finally we surrender to the will of God. I love the closing verse of this passage where Mary says this beautiful response. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary says, I don't understand it all. I can't wrap my head around it all. She doesn't necessarily feel worthy of the calling. She probably doesn't feel adequate, strong enough, capable enough for the calling. She has no idea where God is going to lead her life. But she says, you are God, and I trust that you will provide. She says, I'm your servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Take me where you will. Do what me, with me what you want. Use my life for your glory. And that's the response that God wants to see in all of our lives. To enjoy a perfect relationship with God, we must perfectly surrender to the will of God. Now, Mary can't do that. You can't do that, and I can't do that. And so God says, I can, and I will do it. And he gives us his son. And Jesus comes 
with a heart that perfectly surrenders to the will of the Father. A heart that says, I will leave behind the glory of heaven. I'm willing to take on human flesh. I'm willing to be born as a helpless babe. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to die. And the only crown that this king ever received was a crown of thorns. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. He had a heart which said to the Father, I'm your servant. Lead me where you will. Do with me what you want. Take my life and use it for your glory. And that is the king that we celebrate at Christmas. A servant king. And I want to ask you again, as you think about Christmas, is that king your king? To enter the kingdom of God, you must surrender your life to the king. You must bow the knee before Jesus Christ. And we often don't feel adequate for that task. We don't feel strong enough. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. And many days, that seems a task that is just way beyond us. But we look to Christ and we trust that he will provide. And the only appropriate response, if you see Jesus for who he is, if you see him as the Son of God and the Savior of your soul, the only appropriate response is to say, I'm your servant. Take me where you will. Do with me what you want. Take my life and use it for your glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we worship you for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. This morning, we once again recognize that you are a God who is gracious, and we see your grace and your willingness to love average, ordinary, weak, insignificant people. People like Mary, people like us. Father, this morning as we worship, we worship because the story is not about us, but it's about you. You are a God who redeems, you are a God who rescues, you are a God who saves. And you've made the impossible possible through Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see our unworthiness. Crush any sort of pride that we have in our standing, in our background, in our upbringing, in our religious character. Help us to recognize that there is one way and only one way. And it's the way that you've provided through Jesus Christ. Help us to surrender our lives to him. Help us to surrender every aspect of our lives to him. Teach us what it means to truly have a servant heart.
teach us what it means to follow. Teach us what it means to deny ourselves and teach us what it means to take up our cross and help us to have the confidence that in our weakness, you will provide by the power of your spirit through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.